This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. The goal of this podcast is to present the original radio broadcast from 80 years ago, during the days of the war, with the occasional more recent radio program about the war or entertainment from the day. Today, our episode has two segments. First, we have the January 26, 1944 edition of the NBC Morning News. It includes analysis and updates on the war in Europe, Argentina breaking off relations with the Axis powers, and a report on the black market on the home front. Then, in our second segment, we'll hear from Secretary of War Henry Stimson on the proposed National Service Act. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ww2radio. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The big news today is in the diplomatic field. Russia has rejected the offer of the United States to employ its good offices in restoring diplomatic relations between Poland and Russia. Cordell Hull makes that announcement in Washington today. Now that might be taken as a flat Russian declaration that Moscow is telling the Allies not to intervene in the Russian-Polish border dispute. But there is a catch in that interpretation. America's offer, you'll note, was not to mediate the specific Russian-Polish border tangle. Our State Department was trying specifically to end that dispute by bringing the Russians and Poles officially together again in diplomatic relations. But Moscow considers and has said that the present Polish refugee government in London is not representative, that it's a government, in other words, hostile to the Russians. Therefore, what Russia is probably saying in refusing American mediation today is this, saying that Russia refuses to negotiate on anything with the present Polish regime in London, on frontiers or anything else. It seems to be a blunt hint that the present Polish government in London will have to be reconstituted before Moscow will recognize it. Now, essentially, this doesn't change the situation already prevailing, since Moscow cut relations with the London-Polish regime some time ago. The reason Russia cut relations, you'll recall, was that Moscow grew furious with the Poles when the Poles picked up a German propaganda story about alleged Russian atrocities to Poles. According to this Nazi story, the Russians killed 10,000 or more Polish people near Smolensk in Russia back in 1940. The Polish government demanded an investigation and made charges against the Russians. 
Russia came back by declaring it was the Germans who did those killings and not the Russians. Moscow broke relations. Today, American correspondents in Russia have been taken to the scene of the alleged massacre of the Poles, the Katyn Forest outside Smolensk. Russia has produced evidence, which these American correspondents apparently consider reliable, that the murdered Poles had papers in their pockets showing that they were killed late in 1941 when the Germans ruled the territory and not the Russians. And thus, according to these correspondents, Russia claims definitely it was the Germans who did the murders. Thus, it can easily be seen how Moscow will tell, would tell Cordell Hull, in effect, that Russia wants no dealings with the Polish government which put out the Nazi side of the murder story. The next most dramatic news today is that Argentina has finally broken with the Axis. We'll take you to Buenos Aires in a moment for a direct report. But in Italy, the Germans are apparently pulling troops back from the casino front in a great rush to combat the new American landing near Rome. There is little doubt the Germans intend to defend Rome to the last. According to Swiss reports, the enemy already has started digging trenches and setting up fortifications in the capital. And Russia announces the Soviet capture of that important railroad town, Krasnovardaisk, outside Leningrad. But now, to Stanley Ross in Buenos Aires. The Argentine government today broke relations with Germany and Japan, thus cutting the axis off from its only diplomatic listening posts in the Western Hemisphere. The motive for expelling Hitler and Tojo's last official representatives was the discovery that the axis was violating Argentina's neutrality through the operation of a vast spy ring. Not only in Argentina, but throughout South America, the Gestapo spread a network of espionage that cost many allied lives and ships. But the cocksure Germans took North American and Argentine simplicity too much for granted, and their carelessness led to their undoing. For Argentina, traditionally neutral, the break with the Axis was unprecedented and unexpected. Argentina remained neutral two years ago after three of its ships were torpedoed by the Germans. It remained neutral during the First World War, even after it was proven that the German minister advised U-boats to sink Argentine ships without leaving a trace. Only last week, a prominent Latin American diplomat told me it was too late now for Argentina to change its international position. Argentina is neutral by tradition. If she breaks that tradition now, there must be a hot story behind it. Aside from the fact that the spies include members of high Argentine society, details of the story cannot be fully revealed. But the scope and efficiency of the spy ring is illustrated by what happened to a Norwegian tanker leaving Venezuela with oil for the Allied army. It was halted by a submarine, and before sinking the tanker, the U-boat commander asked the Norwegian how many men were aboard. I have 41, said the captain. You are wrong, said the well-informed Nazi. You have only 40. You left one man in the hospital at Maracaibo. When such espionage efficiency is maintained in Venezuela, which has no relations with the Axis, you can imagine what the Argentine government has discovered in a country where the swastika waved freely. This is Stanley Ross in Buenos Aires, returning you to Kerry Longwire. Thank you, Stanley Ross. Here's just one comment on that Argentine development. From the Allied point of view, that, of course, is highly important news. Allied pressure has forced the Argentine dictatorship 
to throw out enemy agents, to throw them out of their last big stronghold in this hemisphere. But whether the Argentine military bosses love the cause of democracy any more than they ever did, however, is still a question. Secretary Hull, for instance, remarks pointedly this afternoon that he presumes Argentina will now adopt other measures for inter-American security. President Roosevelt has stepped emphatically into the fight over whether soldiers will be able to vote this year. As you know, one plan, sponsored by Democratic Senators Green and Lucas, would order the federal government to deliver ballots to soldiers. The War and Navy Department say it would be impossible to send 48 different kinds of ballots overseas for the 48 states. Others say that a federal control ballot would violate states' rights. Well, Mr. Roosevelt bluntly labels the states' rights ballot plan a fraud upon the American people. But now you're an announcer. I'll be back in just 60 seconds. Even though our synthetic rubber program is hugely successful, there is still a critical shortage of rubber for civilian tires. There are many reasons for this, but here are two. The demands of the armed services for bullet sealing gas tanks, life rafts, and countless other rubber products other than tires continue to require a huge percentage of our manufacturing facilities. The manpower shortage, too, is handicapping the tire makers and the manufacturers of tire cords, just as it has in every other vital industry. Here, then, are a few simple rules for uh, helping you to save your tires. Drive only when necessary. Drive carefully to avoid damaging your tires. Two, keep tires inflated to recommended pressure. Three, recap your tires as soon as the thread has worn off. Recap before it's too late. Four, share your car with others so that the limited tire supply will serve more. Above all, conserve your tires and keep your car on war duty. And this is Carrie Longmire once more. Just how prevalent is the black market here in America? Well, we have a guest today here in the studio who I think can give us the answer. She is Miss Patricia Lockridge, the author of an article in the current Woman's Home Companion magazine on exactly that subject. Miss Lockridge, I understand you've been patronizing the black market in eight cities of the United States. For the benefit of our listeners, too, I'll hasten to say you were patronizing that black market for a legitimate purpose, to find out just how bad violations are and to report back to your magazine. That's right, Mr. Longmire. I traveled 11,000 miles in visiting those eight major cities. It took in a cross-section of the whole country. Well, as the result of your tour... What would you say about the black market in the United States? I was shocked by what I saw, genuinely shocked. I found the black market has neither social nor economic boundaries. It exists literally everywhere in the United States, and far too many Americans are willing to take advantage of it. Would you say, then, that a general tendency to patronize the black market actually exists among most people in America? Oh, no, indeed. As I point out in my article, by far the great majority of Americans do patriotically observe OPA regulations. Then, uh, to take it up from there, it's the serious nature of these OPA violations rather than the number which hampers our economy today. That's it, Mr. Longmire. Well, now, I think everyone will be interested if you give us a few samples of your experience in buying on the black market. Well, let me see. In Chicago, I was able to buy meat in grocery stores just off the loop and in suburban areas without ration points and with no questions asked. Of course, I had to pay far more than the ceiling price. In one instance, I bought two dozen frankfurters. I later tried to give the meat to an army canteen, but they were suspicious about accepting such a large quantity from an unknown civilian. They probably thought I was being trailed by an OPA inspector. 
I finally found a couple of sailors on Michigan Boulevard who'd take the Franks. That was in Chicago, of course. Now, what about the other cities? Well, I'm afraid I can't have time to go into details about all the purchases which I made, for I made them in Washington, New York, Kansas City, Dallas, Houston, and New Orleans. But New Orleans is outstanding, because I went to a meat speakeasy in New Orleans, and there I was offered pork chops, which not only were above the ceiling price, but were actually spoiled. I wouldn't have fed them to a dog. Well, I think that's a very important point that you've just made, because the black market is definitely a carrier of disease, I've been told, as well as destructive to our economy through possible inflation. But you mentioned New York and Washington. What conditions did you find in those two cities? Well, they were almost worse in Washington than anywhere else. Because in Washington, I didn't have to ask to make illegal purchases. They were offered to me. Right on Connecticut Avenue, in one of the very best shops, where some of our best people are supposed to shop. That time, I declined to buy. And I could tell from the salesman's surprise, surprise that I had refused, that he was used to grateful acceptance. As for New York... Well, there I was able to buy a pound of butter without ration stamps in one place and was told, come back if you need anything else. So far, Miss Lockridge, we've talked uh, exclusively about food, which I'll admit is an interesting subject, but women are interested in stockings too, I know. So how about stockings and other rationed articles? The same story, Mr. Longmire, and perhaps even worse, because if there's one thing to tempt the American woman today, it's a pair of nylon stockings or an extra pair of shoes. And, of course, that sort of black market purchase is the worst kind of disloyalty because it feeds only on vanity. It doesn't even have the justification of an empty stomach. Then uh, what might be your final observation on the black market as you found it on your trip, Miss Lockridge? There seem to be many Americans today with these porterhouse pocketbooks who are failing in their elementary duties of good citizenship. The black market exists because they're willing to pay the price. Well, thank you very much, Patricia Lockridge. I think right here, though, I ought to quote Mr. Chester Bowles, OPA administrator, on the exact subject you've been talking about. He has said, and I quote, It is up to every American woman to enlist in the home front fight to smash the black market. Today, by far, the great majority of us are scrupulously observing rationing and sealing prices. But there are those who place appetite above patriotism. You can do your share in breaking the ominous black market by obeying OPA regulations and reporting all violations. It's your duty to yourself, to your children, and to your men in uniform. That ends that particular quotation from Mr. Chester Bowles. And now this is Carrie Longmire saying goodbye until tomorrow at this same time. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From his office in the Pentagon, Washington, D.C., the Honorable Henry L. Stimson, Secretary of War, discusses the National Service Act. Secretary Stimson. My fellow countrymen, I feel that you should know why we in the War Department believe that the passage of such an act is extremely important in the interest of the improvement of war production, the safety of the morale of the Army, and the hastening of a victorious finish of the war. 
Ever since the middle of last year, the great problem before us has been the invasion of the continent of Europe. For the first time, our troops and those of Britain will have to meet and conquer the great masses of the German army. We feel no doubt of their capacity to do this. Those troops have four times accomplished, each time with increasing skill, the most difficult problem of modern war, the successful landing of a large force upon a hostile shore. We have at our hand for the spearhead of the coming invasion, invasion victorious veterans led by accomplished leaders accustomed to success. We have taken the initiative throughout the world. Our leaders and troops and equipment have proved worthy of their task. The great battles of the war lie before us, and there has been every reason for confidence in the ultimate result. But just at this critical time, when our troops are girding themselves for the great conflict, trouble has broken out on the home front. The three vital industries upon which all our output of weapons have depended have been threatened with or have actually experienced nationwide strikes, our coal, our steel, and the railroads. And even when these three great strikes were apparently settled, the epidemic of smaller industrial controversies still continues. They have become so common that our newspapers in America no longer feature them. But I assure you that they are not unfelt on the fighting front. For instance, during the last week, ending last night, there were no less than 22 strikes in progress in the United States in war plants producing such vitally needed fighting material as airplane and tank parts, machine tools and jeeps, aviation gasoline, cable and wire, of which we are critically short, head nets and mosquito bars to protect our soldiers in the Southwest Pacific against malaria. During that week alone, because of these strikes, approximately 135,000 man days of war production were lost. It does not require great imagination to realize the effect of these occurrences upon our fighting troops. I can tell you that today the industrial unrest and lack of a sense of patriotic responsibility in large numbers of our population, which these occurrences seem to evidence, have aroused a strong feeling of resentment and injustice among the men of the armed forces. I believe it is hazardous to belittle the effect of such a situation will have upon the ultimate welfare of our democracy. If it continues, it will surely affect the morale of the army. It is likely to prolong the war and endanger our ultimate success. When the, those troops come back to us again at the close of the war, 
It may have an effect upon the future unity of our nation, which it is disturbing to contemplate. The men in the army see this country divided into two entirely distinct classes. In the, arm, in the armed forces, their enlistment has been carried out with the aid of the Selective Service Law. They have been told not only that they must serve, but the time, the place, and the method of their service have been chosen for them to fit the requirements of the nation. They are facing a duty which they cannot escape and which involves the possibility of death or mutil mutilation. On the other side, they see that the government imposes no corresponding duty upon the remaining men of the nation and even permits them to leave the most important war jobs without regard to the needs of their country. Our democracy has been founded upon a basis of equality and justice. Today, the men in the armed forces are beginning to believe that they are being discriminated against in a matter of fundamental justice between man and man. There is danger that under the influence of that feeling, they will not give even fair recognition to the tremendous production effort which has actually been accomplished by the great majority of American management and labor. In this situation, the evident remedy is for the nation to make clear beyond all misunderstanding the equality of obligation of its citizens. I have heard people say, it isn't necessary to pass a national service law. We only need to penalize strikes. That will be sufficient. The trouble with this diagnosis is that it treats a symptom and not the cause of the disease. The cause of the present situation is deep and fundamental, and it will not be remedied by penalizing what is merely the consequence of a grave underlying lack of responsibility. We must get at this fundamental cause and by proper organization bring home to every working man the fact that his individual work is a duty to the nation, just as important in its way as the duty which the infantryman performs with his rifle, or the artilleryman with his gun, or the pilot with his plane. The purpose of a national service law is to reach this basic evil of irresponsibility and to extend the principles of democracy and justice which should exist throughout our population. In a democracy, there is no difference between the patriotic obligations resting upon those two classes of men which I have mentioned. Certainly, the nation has no less right to require a man to make weapons than it has to require another man to fight with those weapons. Furthermore, in meeting the overwhelming problem of production with its terrific strain upon our manpower, the same necessity of orderly selection which brought us to the selective service system for the selection of our fighting men 
is now bringing us to a selective service system for the selection of our civil manpower. No other system will produce the effective results which our nation needs, and no other system will be so just and fair from the standpoint of our fighting men. Thus, selective national service is not an abandonment of democracy, but rather an evolution of intelligent democracy to meet the mechanical development of modern war. Concretely, I believe that a national service law will produce the following results. First, by clarifying the patriotic duty of the individual worker, and at the same time imposing appropriate legal sanctions to encourage the performance of such duty, it will minimize the calling of strikes. At the same time, it will reduce absenteeism and the shocking excess of turnover of labor in many of our great war industries. These last are evils which an anti-strike law alone would not touch. Second, it will remedy the grave sense of injustice which the armed forces now feel has been practiced against them. Third, it will increase effectiveness in production, not only in keeping men on necessary jobs, but also in finding men for particular jobs where they are especially needed. At present, the unevenness of the distribution of our labor is producing shortages in some of our most vital weapons, when at the same time there is an excess of labor available in neighboring places. For example, while there is an excess of labor for the production of machine guns, tanks, and ships in some areas, there is a shortage nearby in the vital production of aircraft engines and landing craft. On the other hand, the National Service Act will not cause the evils which have been feared by its opponents. The man or woman who wants to do his or her part to win the war as quickly as possible has nothing to fear from a National Service Act. That act does not impair the rights of the worker in respect to wage scales, hours of labor, seniority rights, membership in unions, or other basic interests of the civilian workers. Wherever justified by considerations of family or health, deferment from service would be granted by the local selective service board. National Service Acts have long since been enacted by the great English-speaking democracies which are now fighting this war with us, namely Great Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. With them, the legislation has worked so successfully that the exercise of sanctions has become rare. The existence of the National Service Organization and the morale which it creates have proved that the people of a country want to do their duty when it is clearly pointed out to them by their government. Again, I have heard men say the proposal of a national service law is too late. It might have been useful earlier, but now our production is doing very well and the war is almost over. 
I say to you, it is never too late to remedy an injustice which leaves a deep sense of grievance in our soldiers and lengthens and jeopardizes the remainder of the war at the resulting cost of thousands of lives. But in fact, the war is not almost over. We're approaching its most critical and difficult period during which we shall require not only a large but a flexible production. That is the period when we are likely to be confronted with new weapons by the enemy and require new, new weapons for ourselves. The course of conflict constantly makes necessary changes in equipment and weapons. We have seen that necessity many times already. Today, we are building planes of a size never before witnessed on the battlefield and requiring enormous additional supplies of airplane labor for their construction. Yesterday, we were calling for hundreds of escort vessels to protect our commerce from the submarine. Today, instead of that, we are calling for hundreds of landing craft to facilitate our invasion. I seriously warn you that the coming year will call for a production effort not only larger than last year, but far more flexible for the purpose of meeting emergencies greater than we have ever heard before, uh, faced before. The pace is increasing as we approach the climax. Under a national service law, the American people can bring to bear the nation's total effort to shorten the period of the conflict and reduce its toll. Through no other process can our utmost be given. From his office in the Pentagon, the Honorable Henry L. Stimson, Secretary of War, has discussed the National Service Act. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. We hope these old-time radio programs entertain and help you learn more about what Americans experienced during the war 80 years ago. Be sure to visit brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts for past episodes and more information 